Hey, everybody loves a good story. Don't you? I mean, it could be one of those classic works of world literature or some smash box office hit, The Avengers or Lord of the Rings or some great epic like Braveheart or Gladiator. That's for all my guys out there. You know, or I mean, all kinds of stories, even the gossipy ones. You know, like, hey, let me tell you about what happened last week while you were out. It's like you start a story that way, or once upon a time, and everybody sort of scoots to the edge of their chair and leans in close, and they give you their undivided attention. They're glued. They're ready. Tell me. I got to know. And good stories have a way of doing that. They pull you in. There's the vivid scenery that the author or the filmmaker paints for you. There's the development of major and minor characters, the rapid plot and development of conflicts. And finally, at the very end of it all, there you are, the edge of your seat, biting your nails, ready for that grand conclusion when all those loose ends are gonna get tied up, the denouement, all the conflicts gonna be resolved. How did it end? Where, where are you taking us? What are you gonna do? Those are good stories. They draw you in, leading you to a conclusion. But then you know there's some great stories. Good stories pull you in, but great stories have a way of transforming your life. You're never the same after those stories. You start interpreting the events of your life through them. You start thinking to yourself and the language and the quotes from your favorite novels, your favorite movies, I stick with you. You know, the story of Jesus is like that. I'm talking about the story of Jesus conveyed to us in the Gospels, the Bible, his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Those aren't just good stories. They're great life-transforming stories. It's why, after 2,000 years of Christian history, I'm gonna have to do this, Cody, I'm sorry. It's why, after 2,000 years of Christian history and a lifetime of Easter Sundays, the story of Jesus still has a way of captivating us. I like it's brand new and fresh. And we sing the songs and bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And now he stands in victory. Since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine. That's a great story. It changes lives. And so this morning, I want to enter into this story with you. I want to tell you the story again. Because it's got to be told over and over and over again until God finishes whatever he's doing in this world. Jesus' story is the only story that can accomplish God's plan because when we live in light of the resurrection, we'll live our life with purpose. We'll have hope for the life to come. So that's what I wanna look at in this story with you this morning. It's really actually pretty simple. You'd say, okay, why do we need to retell the story of Jesus' life, and especially his resurrection, over and over again? Let me tell you, for the first reason. Because the story of Jesus' resurrection defies all expectations. 
When we take it for granted after these 2,000 years have passed that Jesus rose from the grave. And you've got a month of Sundays built up in your life where you gathered on Easter and you remembered Jesus rose again. But you know, the people who were present then didn't really expect it to unfold the way that it did. I, I, maybe you noticed this as Gaston was reading it, but Mark finishes his story with the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But he spent 15 chapters telling us the full breadth of all that Jesus did. He began back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus appeared at the Jordan where John was baptizing people, and he went down to be baptized by John the Baptist, and the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove, and the Father spoke out, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days, and after 40 days, he shows back up. And Mark tells us what the message he preached was, Mark 1.15. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And for three years, he traveled, teaching, healing, casting out demons, and pretty much giving sign to anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear that his message was true, that the time was fulfilled, that all the hopes and longings that God's people had stoked in their hearts were finally coming true, and that God was about to act, and he was going to avenge his people's foes. And he was gonna establish a kingdom where righteousness would rule and justice and peace would be the order of the day. And yet at the end of Jesus's life, all that preaching and all those miracles came to nothing. One of his closest friends betrayed him and handed him over to the Jewish authorities who condemned him for blasphemy, for claiming to be the son of God. And they handed him over to the Roman official who, finding no fault in him, bowed to the crowds and delivered him over to be tortured and crucified. And in that moment, like the darkest moment of Jesus's life, all those people who had celebrated his ministry and followed him down every dusty road abandoned him. They scattered just as he said they would. The only people present for his final breaths were these women. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, and other unnamed women. They'd followed Jesus everywhere. They'd supported his ministry. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen his miracles, and there they were at the last. They're eyewitnesses to his crucifixion. They heard his final words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's finished. They were there when Pilate confirmed with the centurion who had overseen his execution that he was dead. They were there when Joseph of Arimathea took his body, lifeless from the cross, and wrapped him in a shroud. They were there when they carried him to a new tomb and laid his body to rest. They were there when Joseph's servants rolled the stone in front of the doorway is gripping. These women 
the only ones of Christ's disciples left there for his very end. I've thought about it all week. You know, if Mark had decided to finish his gospel at the end of Mark 15, the story of Jesus' life would still have been powerful. It would been heartbreaking and sad, but there would still be lessons to learn. I mean, think, think about the stories that you love. How many of our favorite films and novels conclude with the hero dying a martyr for his principles? I thought about Braveheart. William Wallace fighting the English for Scottish independence and finally at the end, English gain the victory and they torture him and they execute him. But he cries out one last time, freedom. He died for his principles. I I thought a little bit about saving Private Ryan and how Jesus' life, had it ended at Mark 15, would have been a wonderful example of the same kind of selfless love that that movie portrays that a group of men would risk their life going behind enemy lines to find a mother's only remaining son. Selfless love. I thought even about Titanic. I know some of you ladies, that was the token one for y'all. But you think about Jack, there at the end, freezing, dying, was her name Rose, for the love of his life. No, I'm telling you, if Mark had have ended his gospel at Mark 15, Jesus' story would have been sad, heartbreaking, but man, it would have been powerful. It would have been gripping. It would have probably given you some lessons to learn from, and you could have followed his example. But I'm telling you, you spin it any way you want. Jesus' story ends with his crucifixion and burial. It's just another run-of-the-mill story fits the plot lines that we've all learned in English class and have picked up in the movies we watched. But it doesn't end with his burial. It ends in the most unexpected way that these women who were there at the crucifixion, at the burial, go out as soon as the Sabbath's over on Saturday night and they go to the market and they buy spices. And they show up first thing Sunday morning, ready to prepare his body, not to preserve it like a mummy, to try to anoint it so that somehow his mangled body would not stink so bad as it decomposed. And they're so overwhelmed with grief that they've thought about all the things that they need to get done to make sure they prepare his body the right way, but they've overlooked the one major obstacle standing in their way. They've not prepared anybody to roll away the stone for them, and it's extremely large. And so they look to each other and say, what are we gonna do? Who's gonna roll away the stone for us? And they were in for the shock of their life. Because the story of Jesus' resurrection totally defied their expectations. They roll up there to the tomb. And what do they see? But in verse five, 4, they say, Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting there at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who's been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. 
So we need to retell the story of Jesus' resurrection, not because it defies expectations only, because it requires some interpretation. Defies expectation and requires interpretation. What does it mean that the tomb is empty? Can you imagine what it would have been like if they had walked in and the tomb was totally empty? How many questions would have been in their mind? Are we in the right place? Have we taken a wrong turn? Are we misremembering? But it wasn't empty. There was no corpse, but there was a man dressed in white, an angel, right? I mean, a young man in glowing white there to deliver God's interpretation of this empty tomb. They don't see Jesus, but they get a word from God. And here's what he says, don't be amazed. That's what an angel's supposed to say. Like everywhere in the scriptures, when people come in contact with divine heavenly beings, they're overwhelmed with their creatureliness and they fall down before them. They're overwhelmed, like who am I that I should get visited by an angel? Sometimes they bow down to worship them and they're like, no, stand up. But in most every case, the angel says, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not be amazed. Instead, listen, I know who you're looking for. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified. He's like, you're in the right place, but he's not here. He's risen, and this is where they had laid him. I love the angel because he interprets the events. He gives them some kind of explanation for what they're experiencing and seeing. You're in the right place. God's at work. I want you to know that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. It happened. The gospels record it for us. We know it. It's changed the world. But historical facts often need to be interpreted. They need some kind of explanation that draws out its significance. And those three words, he has risen, are probably the most important words that have ever been spoken. And those three words sent the ladies running back to their friends. And it sent those friends running back to the tomb to see for themselves. It led to all kind of personal encounters where men and women saw Jesus with their own eyes. He empowered them and sent them out to preach the good news. And it changed the world. It started a whole religion. We believe in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And so I want to tell you what the resurrection means. Let's give you some interpretation on the resurrection. First off, you got to know that Jesus died a vicarious death. All right, the resurrection's important, but what came first? It's this crucifixion. If you were looking at Mark chapter 15, trying to interpret it on your own, you might come to the conclusion that Isaiah foresaw the people coming to. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God as one from whom men turned their faces. You see Jesus on the cross suffering the cruelest form of torture and execution the world has ever known, and you assume, hey, this guy must have done something really bad. But in fact, Isaiah says, it wasn't his own sins that held him there, but we all like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That Jesus was there on the cross dying, not for any sin he committed, not for anything he had done, 
but for the sin of all those who would trust in him. That he died on the cross for sinners like you and me, vicariously, in our place, as our substitute. He was the perfect lamb without blemish. The only one who could pay the penalty of our sins, which the Bible says is death. And so there Jesus was, breathing his last, feeling the full weight of the wrath of God, feeling totally abandoned and turned away from by the Father. Suffering in our place, a vicarious death. But then the ladies show up on Sunday and he's not there. He has risen. And Jesus was raised as vindication. I know you saw what the angel said here in verse six. He is not here. Behold, there's a place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples. And Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. And Jesus had predicted his death to his disciples over and over and over in Mark 8 and in Mark 9 and in Mark 10 and in Mark 14. He had told them again and again and again that when he got to Jerusalem, he was gonna be betrayed and handed over to men and he was gonna be killed. But there were a few times when Jesus had let them in on another secret. In Mark chapter nine, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he told Peter, James, and John, don't tell anybody about this until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And he said in Mark 14, 28, that after he was crucified, he'd be raised up and he'd meet him in Galilee. And in this moment, when the angel said he's not here, it was vindication. That everything that Jesus had said was true. That on the cross, he was entrusting himself to the justice of God. And he believed in his heart that because he had submitted himself completely to the Father's plan, the Father would not abandon him. I think in his heart was Psalm 16. Prayer of prophecy prayed by David. David says in verse seven of Psalm 16, I'll bless the Lord who's counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before because he's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely because you won't abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You'll make known to me the path of life, for in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I know that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was thinking about you and me. He knew completely why he was there. He was suffering in our place, bearing the penalty that our sin deserved, but he also knew, as real as our sin was, God saw him as the perfect lamb in the spotless sacrifice, and he believed that God would raise him up. He wouldn't allow his Holy One to undergo decay. That God had a plan. When that angel said he has risen, it proves it. Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he was gonna do. And lastly, not just that he was raised as vindication, but he was raised in victory. That the wages of sin is death, but because Jesus had surrendered himself completely to the Father's plan, he had overcome sin. He had bore the curse of the law for us. And so he bears no more sin. He lives forevermore. He is in God's presence at his right hand. That's why the apostles loved Psalm 110. 
It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool underneath your feet. That's why Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Look, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we're not just talking about a historical fact, but one that changed the very structure of our world, one that ushered in a new age, a new way for God to deal with our world under the old age. You and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked because God had created our world perfectly and had prepared a place in it for people. But those people had rebelled against him and he had given them over to death. Each one of us was bound by our sins so that as soon as we got old enough, we added the sins of our first parents with sins of our own. But when Jesus came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserved, he broke the curse so that death no longer has dominion over him. He died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and now he lives forever to God. Death no longer has a claim over him, and because of that, the resurrection story of Jesus has to be told and retold, not just because it needs interpretation, but because it promises transformation. See, verse eight, I love it. Mark tells us, the ladies left afraid, and they said nothing to no one. I've really wrestled with this. How do you treat verse eight? And here's what I think. I think these ladies had come face to face with a heavenly being and had a sense in their heart that they had heard a message from God. And they were like Isaiah in the temple. I don't know if you know the story of Isaiah. Isaiah was a priest who was ministering in God's temple and he had a vision. And in that moment, he saw God himself and all of his beauty and majesty and instead of thinking, oh, that's really cool, Isaiah fouled, fell down on his face and said, woe is me, for I have unclean lips, and I'm of a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord, the Holy One. And he knew in that moment he had no business being where he was. He had no business being in God's presence. And I think that's what's going on with these ladies. They're thinking like, whoa, what have we just seen? What have we just witnessed? And they can't bring themselves to say anything. But look, good news is hard to keep shut up. And so sooner or later, they make it back to their friends and they start sharing the story. I mean, how could you keep it in? Other gospel writers tell us they don't. They go and tell the other disciples and the disciples can't believe it. And so they go and check for themselves and the rumors are spreading that maybe Jesus has risen, but his body's not in the tomb and nobody really knows what's going on. But pretty soon, this resurrected Jesus starts doing some transformation in these people's lives. And these frightened women become the first heralds of the gospel and the scattered disciples are brought back together and filled up with the Holy Spirit and sent out to preach the good news. And they go everywhere sharing the good news of Jesus based on these two promises. That because Jesus is resurrected, there is hope for eternal life. You know that? There is hope 
for eternal life. You think about what these disciples have heard and seen from Jesus, this promise of God's coming kingdom. And in their hearts, they had really hoped and believed that it was about to happen in front of their very eyes. But God had different plans, that his kingdom was coming in stages, it was inaugurated by Jesus, and someday it would be consummated fully. And so they lived in this in-between, but they believed that someday God was going to make all things new. And I believe that. One of the most surreal things is to stand in a graveyard and to look at the gravestones and to see how people tell the story of their loved one's lives. And you see the birth date, and you see the death date, and usually a kind saying about them. But that's not the full story. The Bible says that someday every body laid to rest is going to be raised up again. Some to everlasting life in God's kingdom, and some to everlasting judgment and torment away from his presence. Those are the facts. But the gospel message is that anybody who trusts in Jesus has the hope of eternal life. The apostle Paul said it this way, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his first order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. Now, I think about this as a pastor. Easter is the highest of the highs. Funerals are the lowest of the lows. But God's in them all because there's hope for eternal life. The joy of Easter Sunday belongs to those who are in Christ, that we know we will be raised up to share in the joy that he has in the Father's presence. That's why Peter says that God's worthy to be praised and blessed because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says it's a hope that's imperishable. It's a hope that's undefiled. It's a hope that's unfading. And he says it's kept in heaven for you, who are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because of that, we go through the ups and downs of life. Our stories, man, don't they twist and turn? There's hope. And then there's purpose for this life. Not just hope for eternal life. Pie in the sky when you die. But purpose in this life. You see, because Jesus is resurrected, I love what the angel tells these ladies in verse seven. Go and tell. Go and tell his disciples and Peter He's gone ahead of you to Galilee, just like he told you. He's going to meet you there, and you're going to see him. If you've been with us on this journey through Mark, you know that this is a strange thing to tell, tell somebody. Like everywhere in the Gospels, when people saw Jesus' miracles, he told them not to say anything to anybody. Don't say anything to anybody. 
Don't tell anybody what you just witnessed. He commands the demons to be silent. He doesn't want anybody knowing who he is or what he's doing. This is the first time in the entire gospel when anybody's commanded to go and tell anybody anything about Jesus. Go and tell. And that becomes sort of the calling card for Jesus' friends. That everywhere, everywhere they go, they're going to tell people about Jesus. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to testify to the truth of what you've seen. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And that's what they did. They went everywhere telling people that Jesus was raised. Listen, because Jesus was raised from the grave, there's no more grayscale, humdrum, boring life. But we serve a risen Savior. Nobody else can claim that. Nobody else has a purpose as lofty as serving the resurrected king. And so he sends us on his mission. Paul says it like this, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I mean, the purpose we're talking about is a complete transformation, the goals and directions of our lives. If there's hope for eternal life, then this life isn't all there is. And I'm freed from having to maximize my pleasure to see the world and to fill up the short span of my days with lots of experiences. That there's a way to have a legacy and an impact that goes beyond me that lasts not just for time, but for eternity. And that's the purpose. To tell the story of Jesus over and over and over again to our children. And to build a family that passes on the truth of the faith. With our friends. So the thing people would think about us is, man, that Brad guy won't shut up about the resurrected Jesus. That's the purpose of our lives. It's to be like Isaiah and to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus isn't something that just happened to somebody somewhere long ago, but something that bears on my life today to say that we've been buried with Christ through baptism into his death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with him in a death like his, then we know we also will share in his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we'd no longer be slaves to sin. For he who's died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer his master. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This morning, I wonder if you are living in the light of the resurrection. Does it have any meaningful place in your life? Or is it some kind of sentimental mythology that people get together and think about once a year?
locked away in the pages of history. Or is it the all-encompassing reality of your life? Anything less is insufficient. Anything less sells the resurrection of Jesus short. It's not a good story. It's a great story. It transforms your life. It changes everything about you because when you live in the light of the resurrection, you have hope for eternal life and you have purpose for this one. Listen, you and I both know that there are gonna be thousands of people who gather in churches on Easter Sunday and they mumble along to the words on the screen and they hear the messages and they go home unaffected. Don't let that be you. I stand here as a witness. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Would you do that today? Will you bow your head with me?